This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. When Elizabeth Warren announced that she was running for president, she called for fundamental change on behalf of working people and argued that Donald Trump is, quote, just the latest and most extreme symptom of what's gone wrong in America. Then she proposed a tax on wealth, not just on income, and she came out with an impressive proposal on universal child care. For comment and analysis, we turn to George Zornick. He's the nation's Washington editor. George, welcome back. Hi, John. Great to speak with you. Well, Elizabeth Warren has been talking for a long time about how the rich and powerful have rigged our system, but her position suddenly seems almost mainstream in the Democratic Party. Or am I wrong about that? Well, I think a lot of Democrats would like you to think that it's mainstream. Um, And I do think it's obviously the direction that the party is moving. But I think, uh, you know, there's a reason Elizabeth Warren is a lot further and a lot more substantive on particularly on issues of anti-corruption and campaign finance than a lot of her other fellow Democrats are. And I think that's because she's just been there from uh, from the beginning. And so what I mean by that is, is more substantive. You know, every Democrat now is swearing off corporate PAC checks, so money from political action groups that uh, are, are affiliated with a big corporation. And so certainly that is a validation of a lot of this sort of uh, anti-corruption stuff that Warren has been on about for several years. You know, hers is a little bit different because, as I'm sure you've heard, she has also forsworn just recently in-person high-dollar fundraisers, which are kind of a staple of how campaigns raise money. The corporate pack checks that everyone is forswearing, while important and a, and a good symbolic move, campaigns really get a very small fraction of their money from, from checks written by corporate PACs. I think it's certainly true that the Democratic Party is, is taking sort of money in politics much more seriously, though I think it's also fair to say that Warren is a little bit ahead of the pack on that. So let's review the history here for a minute. She was Obama's biggest critic on the left, especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis of uh, 2008, especially on helping people who were trying to avoid foreclosure. Remind us about that. Yeah, so that was kind of her first big arrival in Washington was chairing uh, the oversight committee that was looking into the TARP money that, that the Bush administration and then the Obama administration shoveled over to the, to the big banks after the crisis. So this was a big this was a big job. Now Warren really made it something interesting because really all the statutory power that she had or that her committee had was to write reports. That was their only job was to write a report every thirty days. But she used that oversight and the hearings that that led into those reports to really kind of shape public perception of what was happening in the bailouts, who was getting helped and who wasn't getting helped. And at various times in it, because of the things that, that she wrote, there were big kind of big readjustments to some of the paybacks that the banks made. And it, it put her in this very visible role that also led her to directly confront it several times, Timothy Geithner, who Obama appointed as Treasury Secretary. I remember that we wanted Obama to nominate her to be head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and he didn't, and that was a big defeat for for us. Why didn't that happen? Well, you know, Obama had kind of a two-step with that. When when they were first getting the CFPB off the ground, there was, in the language of Dodd-Frank, there was to be someone at Treasury 
who uh, would would basically help set the agency up, and that is actually a role that he appointed Warren to. But then it became time to nominate a permanent director, and that was important because the CFPB would have no force of law, according to Dodd-Frank, until a permanent director was confirmed by the Senate. So there was a huge battle, which you may remember, uh, back in uh, late 2011, early 2012, of a lot of progressive groups wanted Warren nominated to be the permanent head of the CFPB. She, I mean, she writes in her book that, that she, she wanted the job. It wasn't really a secret. What was coming back in the other direction was unanimous opposition from Senate Republicans, unanimous opposition from Wall Street, and from within Obama's own administration, some pretty staunch opposition from people who, who kind of came out of the, the Wall Street sector. So you're thinking people like Geithner himself and Larry Summers and, and others who are rumored to really be against Warren's nomination. So, you know, so a lot of times when people talk about, well, Obama did this or that, you really have to look at the, the whole administration. And there were people in the White House like Valerie Jarrett and, and David Axelrod who were arguing for Warren. But ultimately, he went with Rich Cordray, who did who did serve nearly a full term as CFPB director. You know, it's funny, it, it almost kind of worked out. It, it was a win-win situation in the end, although progressives were, were fairly upset at the time. But Cordray, number one, was, was a very strong director who was, by most accounts, pretty tough on the financial sector when it came to consumer finance. And then, of course, the, the great irony is that if Wall Street wanted to get rid of Elizabeth Warren, they should have had her be the head of the CFPB because she would just be finishing her term now or would have just finished it. She would never have run for Senate. I doubt strongly that she'd be running for president right now. So it was kind of an own goal, I guess I would say, by the by the financial sector there. Let's talk about this year and this year's the primary. How does Elizabeth Warren distinguish herself from Bernie in this primary season? Well, she's been very direct about the fact when asked that, that unlike Sanders, she does consider herself a capitalist. And I think that though they both uh, would have ultimately very similar administrations in terms of how they treated the financial sector and, and what they did on healthcare and so on, she's much more of, uh, I guess, an inside-the-system reformer. She wants to make, as she explains it, capitalism work better. She wants much stronger regulation. She wants monopolies broken up. So I think that what will end up happening, whether this is what she's shooting for or not, is she will end up trying to attract the voters who basically agree much more with Bernie Sanders than they do with, say, Joe Biden, but who, for whatever reason, either because they have sore feelings about 2016 or they are wary of, of supporting someone who they believe is a, a self-described socialist or uh, doesn't want a septuagenarian white guy to be president, that maybe she can kind of occupy that space and present herself as a serious progressive who is not you know, who's basically an outsider, even though she's been in the Senate, and who will take on big ideas, but I guess just isn't Bernie Sanders. And, you know, it's funny because she, a lot of people were urging her to run in 2016, and, and we wrote, I wrote a cover story for The Nation then, too, about the effort to draft her into the presidency. And it seemed like she would be the only one, or the only viable one, to, to challenge Hillary Clinton. And we had a kind of a footnote in that story, which looks silly in retrospect, that said, like, well, there's really no other serious candidates like Martin O'Malley's out there, but no one's going to vote for him. And there's some rumors Bernie, this guy Bernie Sanders may run, but <laughs> you know it's not likely he'll mount a serious well. campaign. Well, he sure did, but you wonder what would have happened if Warren got into the race early. Would Bernie still have gotten in? Would he 
have attracted as much attention if he did, uh, and just how history might look different if, if she had decided to hop in there in 2016. Well, would you say she is more interested in the economy and less interested in climate change than Bernie? You know, I, I'm not sure that's totally true. I, I think they both have a very strong economic focus, and I think though they both have come to support the Green New Deal and, and things like that, they're not career kind of climate hawks. I mean, I'm sure that you can find statements from both of them going back, talking about the urgency of climate change. But, you know, what I mean in terms of the way that Warren is a specialist and known for kind of going after Wall Street, which is her, her life experience and her, her legal training and so on. It's just not the same way about climate. And I'm not sure who does fit that bill. I think it's actually kind of a big problem in the Democratic primary that there isn't, as far as we can see yet, a serious candidate who is kind of like single issue on climate and, and has been there for a while. The Boston Globe ran a famous or infamous editorial not long ago titled Senator Warren Don't Run. They're a liberal Democratic newspaper. They support her on all the issues. But they pointed out that when she ran for re-election to the Senate in Massachusetts last year, she did not really improve on Hillary Clinton's vote in the state. They both got about 60 percent. That's a lot, of course, for most places. Uh, But the paper says that the winning Democrat in 2020 will have to win over some of the Trump supporters and non-voters from 2016 will have to do better than Hillary, especially in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And a person from Massachusetts uh, is not going to be able to do that. Do you think that's a serious problem for her, for us? Well, I think she takes it a little bit seriously. I mean, because if you looked at her announcement speech, though, she did give it in Massachusetts because naturally she's a senator from there. She really kind of played up her upbringing, which was in a, in a rural community in Oklahoma. You know, I think that, not that there's necessarily correlation, but you can look back all, you know, and everyone says, oh, John Kerry and Dukakis and other Mitt Romney. People from Massachusetts don't tend to right. fare particularly well in presidential races, but I'm not sure what, the, what that there's a real correlation there. I think in particular, what she is trying to pitch herself as, as kind of a Wall Street reformer and someone who will take on the financial sector might actually play pretty well in places like Ohio, Pennsylvania. We'll have to see because her her campaign isn't really in full swing, particularly in those places yet. But if you look back historically, Obama clobbered Romney in a lot of those places. And I think in big part, that was because Republicans screwed up pretty big. They had they had one job after the, the financial crisis, after Wall Street had ruined everything, which was do not run a guy from Wall Street in the first election after that really happened. Well, they, they ran Mitt Romney and he got his clock cleaned. I think that in a lot of places in the Midwest, if Warren or whoever the nominee is can successfully convince people that Donald Trump is a phony populist who has filled up his cabinet with Wall Street bankers and, and big polluters and who is working on behalf of the 1%, that that person, whether it's Warren or anyone else, can actually do pretty well in those communities. I mean, Trump successfully advanced the argument, and it was basically a dishonest argument, but he successfully advanced the argument that he was looking out for the little guy and he was going to you know, bust up the trade deals and kick out the immigrants. And, and Hillary, of course, was on the side of the special interests and the big bankers and so on. So I think whoever, whether it's Warren or anyone else, will be well-suited with that strategy. And I think that she is one of the ones who's, who's pretty uniquely suited to make it. George Zernick, 
His article on Elizabeth Warren is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Thank you, George. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.